that uh, drug problem. Is that right? Is it amphetamines? Uh, the opioid. Wisco? Opioid. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, we are ready whenever you are. Okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of the Candace Owens Show. Look, guys, I take all the bullets for black America. I say the things you're not allowed to say when you're supposed to be babying a culture and making people think that there's some virtue in victimhood. But I am so, so glad to announce today that there is one man who takes more figurative bullets than I do and really goes there. Sheriff Clark, welcome to the Candace Owens Show. Candace, thank you. It's an honor. It really is. Uh, I value your friendship. I look at it this way. You've taken the bullets. I've taken the arrows. <laughs> you really have. You really have. You've done it before me. And what I always say is that people lay down the groundwork. It actually is easier for me because people like you and Dr. Ben Carson kind of went out there first. You know what I mean? So I, people are a little more warmed up, but it's still a pretty toxic culture in terms of just telling the truth. That's the bizarre thing. Just telling the truth. And you're in this really interesting space because you, criminal justice, man, I think that's kind of one of the biggest conversations in black America and one that makes people very uncomfortable. And you and I have both taken so many hits for being honest about what Black Lives Matter is, what Black Lives Matter is not, and what the truth is about black Americans and the way that we behave criminally um, in comparison to other races in this country. Yeah, let's kind of dissect that for a little bit. You know, I spent 40 years in law enforcement, 24 years with the city of Milwaukee police, and then 16 as the elected sheriff of Milwaukee County. You know, moved up the ranks, worked in a number of different positions, but I've seen the devastation uh, that crime can cause, crime and violence on a daily basis. People, and, and this is what I try to explain to people who really don't want to hear it anyway. You know, the overwhelming majority of people, as you know, black people that live in the American ghetto are good law-abiding citizens. They may be poor, they may be under or uneducated, but they're just trying to get through life. And when you're there on a daily basis like me and you see they can't let their kids play outside, I mean, stories like, and, and this was not folklore, where some of these neighborhoods, they had to have their kids sleep in the bathtub to provide a shield for the bullets that fly through with the, the random shootings, the drive-by shootings, these are true stories. No way. And so when you're, when you're, you're seeing what, what people who just, you know, they haven't done anything, they're victims of crime. And that's another thing that doesn't get talked about, as you know is that on the other end, predominantly, it's black people who are victimized by crime. That's correct. Okay, well, I've always been on the side as a law enforcement officer. I'm on the side of the victim. I had no use for criminals. I had no use for criminal behavior. Uh, I understand the importance of law and order in a society, in an orderly society. So that's kind of, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, native. Um, uh, mom and dad raised us right. My dad was, uh, uh, you know, a veteran. Korean War, so he was big on discipline. He was an airborne ranger. He raised me with a lot of discipline, didn't put up with my nonsense, um, taught me to, to accept responsibility and use my head when I'm out there making decisions and judgments. You don't get that a lot today because there's no real role model, male role model in some of these families. So I understand, at least I understand the, the uh, you know, what a paradox this thing can be for people. And uh, I did what I could to protect those people and give them some semblance of, uh, peace and tranquility in a very chaotic world. I want to pause there because you just said something that's really important, saying that you grew up with a strong father figure. And a lot of, I, every time I hit the stage, I talk about the biggest issue facing black America is father absence. And what happens when you break down that structure and you don't have that father figure. I had it in my grandfather. 
there were rules on top of rules on top of regulations on top of rules that made no sense, like no elbows on the table. I still, when I'm with my grandpa, I don't put my elbows on the table because I'm I'm fearful that he's going to give me a long lecture and work me into a prayer uh, and, and ask God to forgive me for putting my elbows on the table. And I think what naturally happens when you remove that sense of authority is that people don't respond to any form of authority at all. It all feels arbitrary. It all feels like, why do I have to listen to you? Because you never had to listen uh, to rules within your own home. Is that maybe something that's going on in our community? Uh, not maybe. That is what's going on in our community, the lack of a male role model. You know, you said your grandfather. You know, my father was raised by, uh, you know, a mom and dad, um, actively engaged. In it. And my, my grandparents were poor. We're talking about Beloit, Wisconsin, okay? Uh, but my dad went off to the military, and that's where he learned discipline, and, and he expected that of his, his kids. And, you know, it's not that, that um, you know, a, a mother can't raise kids without a man around. It's not some mother, single moms do a wonderful job, but you know what? The studies are there. The research is there. I do my homework, and the research says you are fighting against the odds at more times than not. If there's not a male around, a responsible male, I understand, you know, people get divorced or whatever, but there's got to be some male role model in that kid, especially black males. White males, too, but for the most part, it is. If there's not around, they're going to gravitate towards some male role model. They're going to do it, and usually it's going to be the athlete on TV who Jay-Z they don't know. becomes, you know, It's going the to become rappers. an entertainment, or it's going to become the drug dealers, the gangsters in the neighborhood. That's the importance of that. Where the left tries to tell us that, you know, the, the man around isn't that big a deal. It's a huge deal. You know, like you said, you, you know, with, with uh, the rules and the discipline that you had. Yeah, I used to think, uh, don't take this wrong, I know you won't. I used to think my dad was the meanest man on the earth. <laughs> I Not, get it. He didn't beat us and all we got spanked. And that's what I mean by mean. I mean, I had to be in before the street lights went on. I had to be in before dark. My friends got to play out after dark. Not me. I couldn't hang out at the corner store. All right. My dad saw me several times. He caught me hanging out with my buddies at the corner store. He pulled the car over. He beeped the horn. I looked and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble because I'm hanging out. See, and, and he didn't want me hanging out because young men at that age are going to find trouble. So that's the importance uh, that, you know, the things that my dad instilled in me that we don't see anymore. And so all of a sudden you get where these, these young black males are going to gravitate towards something, and it's usually the gang. It's usually uh, some of these pathologies like dro- dropping out of school, joining the gang, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, that sort of thing, fathering kids uh, out of wedlock, which can happen to anybody, but it shouldn't happen three, four, five times with a different man. That's a different pathology, and we shouldn't tolerate it. Right, and, and I talk about this a lot too, but there's an element of this Um, that we should be discussing, which is feminism, modern feminism today, because I really do believe that modern feminism encourages male absence. It encourages it because it's become toxic. Um, They use terms like toxic masculinity, right? And I say to myself, all of their examples of the idea of what it means to be a man now is toxic. They think, oh, this is a man. Masculinity is wrong. There's something inherently wrong with being a masculine man. And to me, I always say that it was toxic masculinity that saved me. You know, I had a healthy fear of my grandfather. Nobody played around with my grandfather. They, we still don't play around with my grandfather, you know? And, and it's just there's a certain level of respect when you're in his home. There are rules. And and because I had that healthy fear, I, I was, I guess, more responsive to that sort of authority when I had to go out in real life. You know, I believed in structure. And yet this version of feminism today, we have 
women that are basically promoting men should act like women, right? Yeah. And women should act like men. There's all this confusion. You can pick your gender. You can do what you want. And ultimately, what I think it's doing is feeding into this idea of a breakdown of the family. Yeah, you know, feminism as a branch of liberalism, you know, has had a very uh, devastating impact on the black community more than anything else, I believe. Uh, and that's not just an opinion. If you look back, and, and we don't have time to get into a lot of it today, but I could support it. If someone were to come up and demand, where'd you get that from? I could show them the research. Um, and it didn't just like discourage a man being around. It kicked a man out of the house. That's right. In other words, you know, you're not needed here. Who became the male uh, role model, the male figure in the home? Uncle Sam. All right. right. The government. That's correct. Took the place of a, a male figure inside that home, the government. Uncle Sam may do, might do some things good, right? Uh, might do some things well. Very little, but a few. Uncle Sam has been a horrible father. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we've never really put this thing back together, this black family structure. And if you go and you know this, I'm preaching to the choir here, but that's okay. If you go back in the 50s and the 40s, blacks had a strong family unit. Unbelievably strong. Strong, I mean. Unbelievably strong. Right, and that's why I said, you know, my dad, uh, you know, his dad was around. and uh, But the thing is, that stuff's important. And this, this feminist movement made it seem like it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It made it voluntary, made it a choice. Well, it's had a devastating impact on kids. You know, if, if a particular person, I don't care if it's a woman, a man, they want to go off on some tangent about, you know, well, I want to do this, and I think, fine. But it's having a devastating impact on our children. Right. They're suffering the most because of this selfishness, and that's what it is. Um, but, I like that know, description of that. It, it is selfish. Yeah. It really is. And But they're promoting that. So here's where the culture starts to seize it. And, and we could say it's selfish, and you can say that they're saying that man, you know, it's a choice, but I think it's much more Machiavellian and sinister than that, right? When you start saying that this is now the goal, right? Right. So men turning into women, this is something that we should be aspiring towards. And they're not just saying it's a choice, they're not just saying, oh, uh, maybe, maybe you could do this or maybe you couldn't. They're actually trying to make it seem like there's something inherently wrong with yeah. the nuclear family, the way it used to be. Like, if you're a woman and you want to stay home and raise your kids, shame on you. You're a victim right. of the patriarchy. That's the attitude now that's being instilled in the classrooms. Conduct without boundaries is, is what's hurting this country today. There has to be limits on things, okay? I don't really care. I mean this. I sincerely mean it. I don't care what people want to do. I do not care. I'll do what I want to do. You do what you want to do. But that doesn't mean if I see you and I don't mean you personally, if I see a man trying to become a woman, I'm going to say, man, that's, dude, that's some abnormal behavior. Right. But now you're attacked for it? No, it's abnormal behavior. Just because it's accepted today doesn't mean it's not abnormal behavior. And so some of what kept some of this in check was that shaming aspect. Society would tell you, <laughs> no, dude, you know, not here, not whatever. But I don't believe those people should be attacked. I don't believe those people should be discriminated against. But all conduct has to have boundaries. And right now, the left has made it clear that uh, we live in a world of conduct without boundaries. We are now acting like there are no such thing as boundaries worse than that. Like there, there's no such thing as reality, right? Like there's, there's literally is no such, there's no difference between being a, a male and being a female. There's nothing up is down. It's whatever you say suddenly becomes reality. And that's a very dangerous, slippery slope. And I agree with you. To the extent that you don't want to acknowledge reality and you want to be harmless and, and, and that's the way you want to live yourself, your life, great. But the problem is that it's being mainstreamed and they're legislating it. 
right? When you can get in trouble for misgendering someone, that's a scary thing. For, for, that's essentially saying you can now get in trouble for acknowledging reality. Sure. Think about this too. Remember before I talked about the impact this is having on kids, young kids, children who aren't developed in the head yet to deal with some of this sort of stuff. Uh, but now when, when parents are taking a young boy in school and dressing him up as a girl, you know, what are they thinking about? This kid cannot process what's going on. You look at some of the sex education they're teaching now, young kids, very young kids, you know, in, in grammar school, books that have, you know, transgender kids or, you know, dressing, cross-dressing. We used to call it cross-dressing, right? Think of the devastation. To me, that's child abuse. That is psychological abuse. They're not ready for that. Maybe but are the adults being abused as well? So this is an interesting question and one that I've thought of a lot. So we can say that children are being abused, but what, what, what would make an adult put their child through this? What would make an adult, an adult subject their children to hormone therapy, getting them injected, right? Well, I think it's when the media starts to sanction things and make it seem like it's normal. The yeah. entire mass population gets a dose of brainwashing, right? Where they yeah. make it seem like there's something wrong with you if you don't see it this way. You become a product of your environment. Right. There is something yeah. with the human species where that is true. I right. like that term mainstream because that kind of behavior used to be marginalized. It was on the fringes. Mm -hmm. It was there, but it was on the fringes. And now it's been mainstreamed and uh, people are being affected by it. A lot of selfishness. Uh, Narcissism you know, is definitely a component of it. Yeah. Virtue signaling. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm so progressive that yeah, I, I well, allow this in my house. But the only thing, and I, I didn't coin this phrase, but I like it. The I think it was Thomas Sowell, guy I admire, who I got a chance I to meet him. and uh, uh, um, be mentored by. He said the only thing that progressives are progressing is human misery. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. It's that's true. very true. And yeah. and it's it's so true. And this is what I say about feminism today is that they're all miserable, by the way. Yeah. And and one of the saddest comments that I've ever read, um, I had uh, Dennis Prager on my show. I like how I'm thinking about who I had. And here we are at PragerU, right? Um, and he and I were discussing some of the stuff with feminism. And under my YouTube comments, one woman wrote, uh, thank you so much for speaking out against radicalized feminism. I fell for the scam, the scam of feminism when I was young, which is when most people that fall for it. You know, it's fun. It's liberal. And she said, I'm now in my mid fifties. I can't have children. I'm alone. And I take pills every day to deal with like, you know, uh, my mental grief. And my heart went out to her. Like, so sad is that she realized that she fell into this mainstream. Suddenly she's going down the stream. Yes, it's progressive. It's amazing. It's feminism. Let's go. And then your life passes you by exactly. and you have nothing. Yeah. Because, because um, you didn't think you can't turn the clock back. Right. You know, there's just some things you cannot you know, you get past your child-bearing age, there's just not much you can do at, at that point. I mean, you can still adopt. You can do some things, but I know what that um, woman was getting at. Um, you know, another aspect, I don't want to switch gears on you, but you talked about feminism, the feminist movement, liberalism, multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is destroying the fabric of this country. And I want to remind people, cultures don't blend, they clash. You know who taught me that? Again, Thomas Sowell. They do not blend. There's no multiculturalism. Where the cultures that have um, really taken off in our world, in the history of the world, are the ones that started with some base values, some base customs, some base traditions, and then built off of that. They looked at other cultures and said, hey, they're doing this thing over here. Thomas Sowell taught me this. I'm not a 
uh, sociologist. Hey, look at that culture over there. They're, we like this part of, of what they're doing. Let's take that and adopt it. Into our, not, you don't try to do this with it. Right. It's going to be a disaster. People are going to gravitate. You know, when you talk about culture, culture defined the way I define the way people behave, customs, traditions, so on and so forth. Um, this has happened over thousands of years. And people have a tendency, it's part of the human condition, to gravitate toward people who look like them and, and, and act like them. That's natural. And for people to try to break that up and say, well, no, you got to have some of these people move in your neighborhood. you got to take this suburban area and put some low-income people. That is going to be a disaster, but we have to have pushback. You know this. That's one of the things that I admire about you. You push back against these things that, you know, have become a part of the norm. Yeah. You know, and, and someone's got to push back. Otherwise, if there's no pushback, that's how stuff goes from being fringe, marginalized, to mainstream. Right. And that, and I do push back because I say to myself, this is a society. I don't have kids yet. Right. So if, you, if I don't start speaking out against this, but it'll be too late. It'll be mainstream. And, and I'm seeing that already happen. Case in point with the trans stuff, going into kindergarten classrooms and learning that they are now allowing kids to pick their gender. Hell no. If I had a kid, I'm going to be the worst parent. I will be in the principal's office every day. I, I, my, I might as well. They might as well, give, they might as well give me a locker. <laughs> I know what you mean. You'll be, I'll be the best. there with my backpack every single day. That's what they need. Talking, and they need that you because it's this is crazy. Them, but, you know, this is crazy. Uh, you'll be the best, and, and but there uh, needs to be more of this. There needs to be more of this pushback, and and people need to wake up and understand this because this is what happens. Society, you just you wake up one day and you have subscribed to absolute lunacy, and you don't know how. And it can only be usually it can only be assessed in the retrospect. We can sit in this chair and we can say how foolish for the KKK, how foolish for racism, how foolish for all of this stuff. We got to be aware of this stuff now because this stuff is catching and it is completely deteriorating and disintegrating our society. You know, you mentioned uh, people need to wake up and speak up. I think people know. I think generally in this country, this population knows, but they've been uh, silenced. They've been um, bullied into being silent about it. You know, words like I said about, you know, if someone wants to go and try to change their, their gender and think they're this, I go, fine, okay, but I'm not going to attack them. I'm not going to do, but it's weird, okay? I'm not afraid to say that, but people have been silenced, all right? This totalitarian left um, has taken control uh, of, of speech, okay? They have uh, cornered the market on it. They control the language. What you can and can't say, you can't say it's weird. You can't do this. You have to call it this. You have to, if you control the language, you control the narrative. Right. And so because we're not hearing a lot of pushback, I don't take that as people don't know when they're asleep. They're afraid. But I tell people, you know what? Be not afraid. Because at some point, you know, and people stronger than me, people in more influential position than me have spoke up. You look at people like Abraham Lincoln. You look at people like Frederick Douglass. All right. Yeah, right. You look at people who have come before me. You look at Dr. Martin Luther King. You look at Gandhi. All right. They had the courage and the conviction to go, no, wait a minute. All right. Some paid with their lives, right? Like Lincoln, like King. Uh, some of them survived that, but somebody's got to push back. And so I see that uh, as part of my role, not to save the world and the country, but at least to be a voice, a a counter voice because we need a plurality of voices in this country and we're getting away from it right now. The, the left is dominating the narrative 
And, you know, I, I think this is sad. Uh, I really do. But I don't know that they are. I think there's an illusion that they're dominating the narrative. But if you look at, I mean, we've got, look who we have in the Oval Office right now, right? If they were, yeah. if they were in fact, dominating the narrative, we would be talking about President Hillary Clinton, <laughs> the first elected female yeah. president. And that's, that's a fact. And even when I, I, I consider, just look at their the numbers of how many people are watching that stuff anymore, right? It's just completely plummeted over time. The only, I mean, the only place that you can really see, the only reason CNN has any viewers left is because it's mandatory watching in airports, right. you know, yeah. <laughs> and in salons and in bars. It's mandatory watching. And I think that what we're seeing now with this undercurrent of culture, shows like mine, right, popping up on the internet, is people know in the back of their head something's not right. They're yeah. starting to turn off that mainstream narrative and they're looking at alternative sources on social media and finding people like me and like you. And, and uh, this is the push Pushback. This is sort of people saying, no, enough is enough. Sure. And, and it's our role right now. Whether we want it, I think it was thrust on me. I didn't uh, map it this way. I didn't, uh, I couldn't have scripted it the way it went. But, um, you know, I have a deep faith in God. And sometimes God calls you in mysterious ways. And, you know, if you if you know that it's, it's, it's his will and not mine, sometimes you got to go in that direction. Okay. Right. Because it's not fun being in these positions. But, you know, you mentioned President Trump. Uh, it was very good to me, and I got uh, involved with this campaign early on. Uh, got behind him early on. I sensed something different. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, weird. But I said, the early people I, like you is interesting. So you, when when was the first time that you spoke out in support of him? Like, I want to hear that story. Yeah, I, I was doing a, a weekly podcast myself on the Blaze. Okay. And uh, when that started, when he came down that elevator, I started to do every segment. And as the can the the primary started. I'd do a segment for that week on the primary, and he fell into a little rut where he lost like three, four in a row, and everybody thought, ah, he's done. Ah, he's finished. You know, it, it, it was, uh, uh, what do they call that? There's, there's a phrase, um, he started leaking oil, you know, and, and I said, I would get on that podcast, and those things are all still there. People can go back if they think I'm lying. Most people, don't, they know I'm not lying. And I said, you can dismiss this man at your own peril. He's going to be the next president of the United States. I said it before he won the nomination. Wow. All right. He came to me during that process because he'd see me on TV, on Fox. and uh, But I met him before that at an NRA convention, before he announced. And he was a speaker. I was a speaker. And uh, we ended up crossing as he was coming out off the stage and I was uh, coming into the building and, and we talked. And I just, you know, I just, I, I saw him. Everyone knows who Donald Trump is. Okay. I never watched one episode of The Apprentice. Me neither. Not one. But... Everyone knows who Donald Trump is, right? He's a brand, so that's what I mean. And I, I had the people who were escorting me, and I said, hold on a second, I want to go say hi to Mr. Trump. He was off a little way, and I went over, and I waited for people trying to get his, their, his, his autograph and everything, and I waited my turn, and, and then I just reached out and said, uh, Mr. Trump, and before I got on another word, he said, David, I think you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's amazing. David. It's amazing. Everyone knew me as Sheriff Clark. Most people don't know my first name. Right. And that left a mark on me. I said, that's kind of cool. Not because he said hi, but he saw obviously beyond the symbol of the uniform because he knew my first name. So anyway, the next year at the NRA, he had announced. And we're in the back room again. We're, we're speaking on the main stage. And um, he's coming out. He's coming off the stage. And I'm in one of the green rooms. And I had, I'm getting uh, makeup put on because I'm going up in a couple speakers and and I asked the makeup artist, I said, hey, uh, will the president be coming down this way here when, 
you know, like pointed to our, toward a hallway. And she says, yeah, that's the way he went in. I said, give me a minute. I went out there and I'm, I'm looking over this ramp. It's elevated. And I'm waiting. All of a sudden, I see, hear this bustle. And, you know, everything you know, surrounding the president, even before he was president, there's always a crowd, right? And I hear this crowd coming out. I looked down. It was then candidate Trump. And I yelled out. I said, hey, Mr. Trump. He looks up and he says, hey, I got to go up here and say hi to my favorite sheriff. He detoured around the way that he was supposed to go out, you know, where his car was waiting. And he came up and he talked. I got pictures of this. I don't make stories up. There's no need for me to uh, blow stuff up that, that doesn't need it, right? And he said, uh, David, I'd like your support. Um, you know, I knew he was a candidate. And I said, I want to wait till the primary's over. I said, because I want the voters to decide who's the nominee's going to be. And I'm, I'm, I wasn't a registered Republican anyway. I said, I want the voters to decide. I told him, I said, but you're going to win this thing. And when you do, I'm going to be there for you. Sure as heck, fast forward, he wins the nomination. And uh, his camp gets back to me again. Sheriff, we're in, you know, you said, and I said, I'm a man of my word. If I give my word, you can take it to the bank. I said, just tell me what you need me to do. And then they got me involved and worked my rear end off that whole summer all over the country, did two tours across America and the Great America Tour, bus tour, and uh, it was fun. It really was. But I got to meet a lot of great Americans. I found out what this country really was. This is a great country. It's great because of its people. I went to some areas you would not think a black guy would be accepted. I've been into some of the most rural areas of Tennessee that you're going to find. I've been to backwoods places and states with nothing but white folks. And you know what? Every time I came, they treated me and accepted. They knew I was a sheriff, but that doesn't mean anything. If they're just racist, they don't give a damn who I am and what, right? They're like, Say what's again. that mm, doing here? Right, exactly. Treated me like I was their favorite son. Right. And these were Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when I watch today and I watch them, you know, labeled the Trump supporters are racist, it is, I go, <laughs> no, they're not. I think, mm -hmm. you know, pump the brakes. Pump the brakes on it. No, they're not, because I met them. I didn't just hear about them. I met these people, and they easily could have. I would go to places in rural areas and like barns for the GOP event, that, that country, right? I'd be the keynote speaker. Normally, uh, I know the one, I can't remember the city in Tennessee, but uh, they said we, we get about 50 people here at this event every year. They had 150 and standing room only, they had people in a waiting line because I was a keynote speaker. Why would these racists do that for a black guy? I mean, right? because because they're not racist and, right. and and what they're running towards, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about because I now have the blessing where I speak all over the country and I've spoken in almost all 50 states, same thing, back country, places that you just wouldn't expect. And every yeah. time I visit a new place, I say, I realize how ignorant I was, more and more how ignorant I was about what America is yeah. because I grew up you know, just outside of New York City, right? And we are the people, these are the elitists. We are the people that think that we know yeah. everything. I lived in the city for seven years. Oh, we're so educated. We're the ones that are writing the articles because we yeah. understand. And yet we, we, we've never <laughs> seen America. We've right. never seen real America, backcountry America, and understanding that they were just losing and somebody finally said it. And, and they've been labeled and lied about and libeled and smeared by people that are just calling them racist because they have different values than than the people that live in these coastal cities. And that's just the truth. Sure, that's why they call us flyover country. I'm born and raised in Wisconsin. 
Uh, and they don't say that as a compliment, flyover country. They think the only thing that matters is California and New York. Yeah. Everything else in between doesn't matter. But we do matter. And the president understood that. Mm-hmm. Trump understood it. He said there is a, a, a group of people in this country feel disaffected. They don't feel like they matter anymore. They're disenchanted. They probably bailed out of the political process. Many of them probably didn't vote anymore. They just said to hell with it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's who he galvanized. Mm-hmm. And that's who he resonated with. And that's where his strength came. But, but here's the thing that I like to caution people about. Trump threaded a needle, okay, in, in that election. All right, he won Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania by a total of 70,000 votes. Wow. Okay, 20,000 in Wisconsin, 12,000 in Michigan, and then the rest in Pennsylvania. That's a razor thin margin. Mm-hmm. And you had a low uh, Democrat turnout. So they could easily flip that. That's why I want to caution people about, yeah, he's going to win. Well, it's just the economy. I tell people to act like we're going to lose. You know, I'm a veteran of campaigns. I had to get elected to be the sheriff. And I always made sure that the people that worked in my campaign had this mindset that we were going to lose. You know why? Because fear is a great motivator. Mm-hmm. Made them work hard. And my voters. And one, I'm taking it for granted. Hey, you won the last two elections. I won four elections in a row, right? Hey, you won the last two. I said, I don't care. We might lose this one. Mm-hmm. We'd get polling data to show them slightly ahead. I never put it out. I, no, because people might go, oh, good, he's, he's going to have mm-hmm. this. But getting back to the president, uh, he's been great to me, my family. Uh, whenever he came to town, this is after he's elected, did a couple Brown County events. Brown County's a stronghold, uh, GOP stronghold in Wisconsin. Um, my family would be invited, and uh, he'd always, you know, they'd let us in the green room. He'd always take the time to come over and and talk to, and, you know, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my, my niece and nephew, my wife. We don't have kids. And, uh, but he'd take the time to say hi to all of them. And it wasn't a rope line, right? And I remember one day my niece, she's about 16 at the time, uh, she says, hey, can we take a selfie? He says, sure. And she goes, and takes, that's the kind of guy he is. I know Trump. Right. Because I've been around him and I've talked to him. I've had private briefings with him. I know what's in his heart. Is he a perfect man? Nobody is. So I don't get into, well, you know, but I know what's in his heart. He wants what's best for this country. Mm-hmm. He loves this country. I love this country too. And because of what it afforded me, the opportunity. When we got over that ugly period of slavery, all right, staying on, this, on the fabric of the soul of this country that will never go away. However, at some point, and this is where I, I had an epiphany, um, Candace. I just decided to forgive America for the past sin of slavery. You know why? Because the God that I pray to every day teaches me to forgive. The God that I pray to every day extends forgiveness. And if he's going to do that for me, the least I can do is do that to somebody else. And so I've I didn't forget, and I say never forget slavery, but it, for me, it was time to forgive. And you know what? It was very liberating. Right. When people say, well, how'd you become this? I, it, was, it was just, you know, I just realized I had to get into the mainstream if I was going to reach my potential. You can't do it on the, you know, with these fringe groups and Black Lives Matter and, yeah. and so on and so forth. You better get in the mainstream. Right. And that means you're going to have to mix it up with white folks. Right. So I never had this animosity, never, even before that epiphany. But I say this publicly. I say I forgave. And I moved on and I said, it's been liberating. 
You know, what's funny is that you say you forgave it. I never felt that I needed to forgive it. I felt in, in every way that I needed to honor the history that our ancestors went through. And I just can't think, and I, I speak about my grandfather all the time. He didn't grow up on a sharecropping farm in the segregated South and work his entire life to give me this opportunity so I could go shrieking in the streets, screaming, right, about about the injustices of life. I live in a lap of luxury compared yeah. to my grandfather. I have every opportunity. So I just, I couldn't be such a coward as to not go out in life and try to do even more than the ancestors before me and the, and the people before him, right? So sure. I do it out of honor for my grandfather yeah. because he never complained. He never called anybody racist. He got up every single day and he worked. He still does it today. He doesn't have to. He's retired, but he can't not work because it's in his DNA. So my motivation has always just been, this is the time for us to be great, right? This is, there is nothing, there's literally nothing holding us back. And yet if you speak today to black Americans, and I tell you, I do this in every room when I'm on college campuses, I say, who in this room believes that America is a more racist country today than it was 60 years ago? And I, I say, I just want to know what planet I'm in right now. So just, I'm just going to ask planet that basic question. Delusional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I go, okay, great. We don't, there's no gravity up is down. Let's get yeah. started. Right. It's amazing. <laughs> These people have no idea. You and I know this. They have no idea. And you know what? I don't have too much of an idea other than what my mom and dad went through because there were still the fringes of Jim Crow. All right, it was more in the South, but check this out. By the way, a lot of what I'm saying today is in my book, and, and you know, I get a, get, get a chance to uh, do a plug here, Cop Under no, no, Fire, yeah. Beyond What's Hashtags of, be, Cop Under Fire, Beyond Hashtags of Race, Crime, and, and uh, Politics for a Better America. My dad served in the United States Army, fought in Korea. He was an airborne ranger, did several parachute jumps under fire, getting shot at as he's coming down out of the skies, lost several of his um, uh, platoon doing that in a segregated army. The United States Army was still segregated. He had to serve in an all-black platoon. If there's anybody in this country, my dad served his country, risked his life for America that would not allow him to serve <laughs> with white soldiers. And okay? Colin Kaepernick can't See, stand for the national anthem. But you, my point with that is, if there's anybody that I know that could have a chip on their shoulder about racism and discrimination, because he had to live it in the army, right? It'd be my dad. He never harbored those. And the same for my grandfather. That is what the insanity is, is I'm like, he lived it. My grandfather lived the KKK, shooting bullets inside of his home. He lived it, right? They, 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 what they did to him, what they, yeah. how they terrorized his family, he lived it. And I've never heard my grandfather say a single bad word about white people. They were always a part um, of, of his life growing up. There, there was never any animosity. So it's just stunning to sit and think that the most privileged black people that have ever lived in the history of the world are black Americans today, right? They are also the whiniest, the most entitled, and the ones that can't seem to do anything without making it into something and saying that they're oppressed. Yeah. How is it possible? Right. How did we get into this paradoxical bind? They're fed that BS, and they're spun, they're, their brains are like sponges. They, they, they're not curious about anything. They don't poke and prod. They don't question. Their brain's like a sponge. They hear it and just soaks it all in. And yeah, 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 it must be true. It must be right. We don't teach in our universities, our high schools either. We don't teach people to think. We don't teach people to be critical thinkers. That's what education used to be outside of the, you know, things like, you know, the, the you know, um, math and some of those, you know, sciences like that. It's to teach people to expand this 
thing that God gave you and explore, okay, and question things and be. There's nothing wrong with that sort of thing. But they don't teach that anymore. They indoctrinate. So that's why you get this. These people have been indoctrinated with the thing uh, that you're talking about. It's had a devastating effect on several generations of people. We're into like the third generation. Uh, like three generations ago, this stuff started, right? Well, these are the ones, these are the AOCs. Right. Who went to Boston University, right? This is, this is where they, they're indoctrinated. Right. And they can't think. And when you present stuff to them, they go off on some tangent, whatever, because they can't even put forth a counter argument that makes any sense. So then they go, ah, oh, you're racist. Ah, oh, you're misogynist. Ah, oh, you're this. You know, it's, it's, it's a shame. But uh, think about this. This is the, the thing I worry about. Um, these people are on the doorsteps of being in power. I know. They're on the doorstep now. They haven't come through the door. They're on the doorstep. Right. I mean, I, I, I try to be, I try to think more optimistically just because what I've seen happen um, just over the last few years of me being in politics is that the conservative movement is growing and the leftist movement is shrinking, believe it or not, on campus, what we're able to do. And I think partially it's because we're getting banned and censored. So for the kids, right. conservatism starts to feel like, punk rock, rock and roll. Like you're not supposed to do it, so we're gonna do it, right? Yeah. And we have a president who's irreverent and saying things and that sort of appealing. Um, and I think that also people are just getting exhausted with being upset about everything. Yeah. It's, it is exhausting. I'm like, well, yeah. everything's racist and people are becoming immune to those words. So because they're overplaying their hand, my hope is that it's actually gonna benefit us because people are getting tired of being offended yeah, about you know, everything. You're right, and we can hope. I mean, I hope too. But I always remind people, and I don't mean this condescendingly, hope's not a plan. Right. We got a plan for these people being in power one day before that conservative uh, movement actually stands up, rises up, mm -hmm. says enough is enough, and engages in the political fight. Because this is that's what this is. We've, we've had political war declared on us. War. I don't think that's hyperbole. No, it's not. Ask Steve Scalise. Ask these people who've gone to Trump rallies and been beaten. Ask them whether, you know, to say that we're, we, we've had political war declared on us. Ask them if it's a hyperbole. It's not. No, it's only escalating, by the way. The violence is escalating. It's not de-escalating. Right. I thought, I actually, there you go, hoped <laughs> that once he, once Trump was in the office, things would die down. And oh, we all did. Just, we, no, we all did. We just keep going up, 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 up. And it's just. That's been the natural Progression after an election, election's real contentious, right? And then people settle down, mm -hmm. and they say, "Okay, we'll we'll politically oppose you, but you know you'll get to govern." They won't let Trump govern. No, no, they won't. This is different. The, the, the generation of thinkers are dying, which is why I took the time to uh, meet. I sat down with Clarence Thomas. I've always admired that guy. If you ever get a chance, read his book. Uh, his I think it's biography. Uh, My grandfather's son. He's raised by his grandfather. Mm -hmm. Miles is his name. Clarence talked about in the book. I thought my, my grandfather was the meanest man. Remember I said yeah. that? I did too. I thought, but it's what we needed. It's what he and his brother needed. Mm -hmm. And he, he insisted that they become educated. You know, his mom had some uh, mental problems and she turned them over to the grandparents. She couldn't raise them. But at least there was somebody there, see, who was not going to abuse them, was going to care for them, was the grandparents. But the thing is, uh, I reached out to him. And it took me a while to get in. You know, it's hard to get. It's not like you call the Supreme Court and say, yeah, I'd like to come in and meet Justice Thomas. I know. Okay, when would you like to go? It doesn't work like that. But I don't take no for an answer. 
And the, the, the secretary was very nice. You know, she'd say, I'll get him the message. You know, I kept getting blown off a little bit. All of a sudden, one day, I'm sitting in my office, and I get a call, and it's Justice Thomas's office, his assistant, and said, uh, uh, the justice um, would like to, you know, meet you and whatever, and um, we want to get the date together. I'm like, man, persistence pays off. I always tell that to people. A side note here. The best thing that you can instill in a young person is the ability to overcome obstacles and persevere. That's what I did here. Couldn't get in deep enough. Tried his wife. That didn't work. Kept calling the office. I didn't give up. I tell it to young people all the time. So anyway, I got to go in. He and I sat down like you and I. I thought he would sit behind his desk. You know, I go into this it's great chambers, right? I thought he'd sit behind. And I, was, I was nervous. This is a Supreme Court justice. He came out from behind his desk, and we sat in two occasional chairs like this, just sitting across talking from which. First of all, I was blown away by that because that put me at ease. We sat up there, Candace. We talked about stuff. Many of the things that you and I are talking about, I saw this bust. He has, he has, he's a big fan of Booker T. Washington. He's got a bust of Booker T. Washington, Abe Lincoln. And I asked him, I said, who's that? He said, that's Miles, my grandfather. He has a bust of his grandfather? Yeah. And he said, the reason why I have him there, because he's looking down at me. I love that so much. See, you know, it just. I love that so, so anyway, much. It was kind of ironic. And then he signed a book for me. And he wanted pictures. I'm leaving. I'm like, OK, I got more than I'm supposed to be. And he goes, hey, Sheriff, I'd like to get a couple pictures. We took a couple pictures. Great man. Funny, personal, you never see that. In, right. Uh, um, Comes across uh, as very austere. Yeah, no, this guy is, we talked like we had been college buddies. And then uh, he asked me, he says, uh, hey, you ever meet um, Thomas Sowell? I said, no, he's on my list of people to meet. And he said, uh, let me see what I can do. Well, before that happened, I ran into Victor Davis Hanson, who's on the Stanford uh, Hoover Institute with... Uh, Thomas Sowell, and I met him at an event, and I said, hey, is there any Victor Davis Hanson? He says, you know what, of course, he's not going to give Thomas Sowell's information. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you his personal email, but just don't tell him you got it from me. <laughs> so he gives me his email. Well, I ended up going out there, flew out to California, and spent an entire day with him just tapping his brain about everything. And, of course, he knew where I was, so he didn't. he wasn't holding his guard down and and I said, you know what? We're losing you guys, man. Because he said, yeah, he said, I'm an old man. Thomas Sowell, Clarence Thomas, that's that generation of thinkers. Walter Williams, Condoleezza Rice. I mean, they're all hiding out in California, and I'm like, where are you You know what? I, I can shorten this last one. Thomas Sowell, he said, you ever meet Walt Williams? No, stop. Do you, you understand? See? Do you know what you're doing to me right now? This is like, do you know how many emails I've sent to Thomas Sowell? Do you understand? Like, Clarence, Clar you're just, you're making me very jealous well, of what you're doing. Uh, I'm at, the, I'm at a hotel. We were going to meet at Stanford uh, in his office. And I thought I'd be going there, right? Uh, I get a call that morning from his uh, assistant who said, um, what hotel are you at? Uh, Mr. Soul will be picking you up. I'm like, picking me up? What, what do you mean picking me up? I'm like, what is this? Sure as heck, he pulls up in a car. He's driving. You know, he's 70-some years old. 
still, you know, his, his mind's still with him. But see, these guys don't have this this uh, sense that they're bigger than anybody, mm-hmm. better than it. This guy comes and picks me up, right? Clarence Thomas had me on his calendar for 30 minutes. I'm in there for an hour, and I did. When I came out, I knew I was in. A, I know it was an hour and 47 minutes because I checked my watch. I said, "Holy crap!" I just tapped tapped his brain because I want to learn from these guys. That's me. See, that's what I'm trying to do now is become that next generation. I want to be known as a thinker. I want to be known for being able to make uh, coherent thoughts and stuff and not just be a firebrand because that's what I had to be on Fox. You know, you have to throw flame. You have to be a flamethrower. That's all you're going to get time to do. Mm -hmm. It can be three minutes. Mm -hmm. And so you got to throw flames. you got to throw bombs. Um, You can't make this long like you and I. You can't do this on TV. No. So um, met him, and then the only one I haven't met, and I haven't really worked on that one, is Shelby Steele. Yeah, Shelby Steele. Right? But we're losing these guys. They're not dead yet, but guess what? These guys are tired. They're getting up there in age. Who's the next generation of black thinkers dwelling? Right. They're all on the left. They're not thinkers, though. That's no, the thing. If, if, if you're a thinker, you're not on the left. But they're in, in these universities <laughs> right? with PhDs and, yeah, all these goofs, right? Right. They're not thinkers. That's the whole thing. They're not. No. But but we're losing that. Right. And it's scary. That, that, scary. That, that worries me. Yeah, that uh, definitely worries me, too. And I talk about that all the time. Like, the, these, they are so important right now. They really are. And as, as yeah. much as they're willing to do, they should do. Because you're exactly right. We're losing an entire generation of thinkers. And that means it's problematic for just the future of Black America. Which brings me to, to a question I want to ask you to wrap this up. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about Black America? And I ask this, and I'll go first, because I was really optimistic when I got into this, and I can see how people fall into the trap of feeling pessimistic because I've just never seen, so, like, there's just so little critical thinking and such um, such a belief in culture. I mean, we're just so tied into culture. And what, I mean, when you have Cardi B telling you who to vote for on Instagram, it's just scary, the amount of likes. I'm looking at millions of likes because she's like, vote for Bernie. And yet three months ago, she's ranting about how high her taxes are. And I'm just going, does anybody think anymore? Let's say the answer, my answer would be the jury's still out. I, I, I think it's somewhere in between because, and it probably leans a little more toward pessimistic. Until we break free, until we become independent thinkers, until we start to um, reassociate ourselves with our history, because our history's rich. And it's about families, and it's about hard work. It's about overcoming things like slavery and Jim Crow. We were attached to that, and we were making great progress in this country post Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. We were absolutely. And then it stopped in the '60s when the Democrats got a hold of our minds. But I think with you, with me, and there's a couple others out there, um, we need thought leaders. Right. And then we need to have our voice be included in the conversation, and not be told you're not wanted here. You're, we're not looking for a plurality of voice. You know, you're this, you're Uncle Tom. I might be. I mean, if they want to call me that, what I mean by I might be, but my voice still matters. Right. Let's get over the name calling and just let my voice be heard. Right. If people want to reject it, I'm good. But they don't want to hear your voice. They don't want to hear my voice. They don't want them to hear my voice. You know why? It's going to resonate. Because it's the truth. And it's their biggest fear. Because the truth always resonates. 
Well, I cannot thank you enough for doing this with me, but we wrap every episode uh, with you leaving a voice message for the world. So what you're going to do is we're going to give you two minutes and you can say whatever you want. If you wanted a message to fall onto the ears of every single person in the world, what would that message be? You're going to look into that camera and you're going to deliver it and you're going to do the countdown. Are you ready? On your market set world, I give you Sheriff David Clark. Well, that's interesting. World, you know, I think of people like Gandhi and uh, people that have had a kind of worldly influence. But, um, you know, basically, I just want to talk about America because I think America is the leader in the world. I think it is the best country in the world. I believe when Ronald Reagan said, you know, it said shining city on the hill for all the world to see and emulate. I believe that sort of thing. Uh, America has to, there's, you know, this, this concept of Western culture and um, American culture is real, but l think of what it's led to in terms of the world. Think of the things, the inventions uh, that have come out of the United States of America, the medical inventions, those sort of things. So that's what our role is in this world, and we can't shy away from it. And we can't allow uh, other, even foreign forces, to d diminish that, because without America, uh, for the rest of the world, and not much good's gonna come out of that. Thank you so much, and that's a wrap. Thank you so much for coming in on such sure. short notice. That was awesome. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.